there are very few investors slash portfolio managers, even people who claim to be value investors, who actually base their decisions on valuations. I, I think with valuation models, history for a lot of, uh, well, for investors is all we have numerically to, with certainty for what the company's done. So a lot of people find comfort in using those numbers to, as you mentioned, project the future. The best days of that excess risk capital might be behind us, and that might be a healthy thing. That's a good thing for economies and markets. I'm looking forward to the angry comments about Demodorin comparing Bitcoin to dog poop. <laughs> or maybe dog poop will be the next big priced asset. Maybe, maybe that'll be the other thing. Maybe we'll be paying <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. Not who knows? Who knows in this economy? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plain Podcast. We're here with another uh, esteemed guest, uh, someone that we're very lucky to have on the podcast. Uh, someone who's very well known in the world of finance, both academic and by practitioners. I'm joined today by the Dean of Valuation himself, as he's uh, sometimes called, Professor Aswath Demodorin, Dr. Demodorin, to be uh, perfectly correct. Uh, professor Demodorin is a well, professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU and a publisher of a great many number of, of reports. Uh, studies and books, including uh, one I actually <laughs> found out myself. Uh, you wrote for one of my corporate finance classes <laughs> that I took in university. Yeah, I, corporate I, finance. Yeah, yeah I, I dug that up. I didn't realize I had a, an Aswath piece myself, but uh, didn't even know that you were teaching me in university. So that's very exciting to find out. Um, but but a publisher of, of uh, or rather an author of a great many number of books, uh, research reports, um, and also someone who posts a lot of free content online, resources, tools, and, and actually data points that you publish on your website, but also full university style lectures on YouTube, on your website, uh, making you and, and the content you post an incredible resource for anyone trying to learn about finance valuations um, and really anything on both the academic and the more practical side. So thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the, uh, the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be on. For anyone who hasn't come across your content before, hopefully my introduction did a, a bit of justice for it, uh, but could you explain a bit about uh, the work you do uh, outside of being a NYU professor, uh, how you got to the position you are being known as the, the Dean Evaluation, as, as some people call you? I, I'll make it very simple. I'm a teacher. I've always been a teacher. That's all I do. And almost everything I do in my life is an extension of my teaching. So the fact that I'm a professor is just a side note for my teaching because I became a professor because I wanted to teach. And I write, I write to teach. When I'm on CNBC, I get a two-minute window to try to teach as best as I can. So almost everything I do in my life is an extension of teaching because I love teaching. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy the change that I can create from teaching. Why finance? Because to me, corporate finance and valuation give me a chance to bring together not just the numbers part of business, but the story part of business. They bring together this capacity. In fact, one of my books is called Narrative and Numbers about how every valuation tells a story and every story about a company can be converted to valuation. And by melding numbers and narrative, it gives me a chance to, to use both halves of my brain, my left brain, my right brain, at least as legend would have it. And I've enjoyed that. So from that perspective, finance is where I am, but teaching is my true passion. And you've been teaching, if I'm not mistaken, for since the 80s, if, if I'm correct. So you, you have 40 years. <laughs> yeah, quite a lot of experience. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, taught, I taught my first class in 1984 at UC Berkeley. No kidding. And so this is my 38th year teaching. So it's been a long time. 
Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's, that's a huge track record. And, and, uh, like I mentioned, one that's kind of given you the, this title in the space and outside of corporate, uh, finance and valuations, which uh, tend to be sort of the crux I will of, of some of the courses that you teach. You've also touched on areas like investment philosophy and, and things like that, which uh, to the kind of point you touch on the more qualitative side of investing, what prompted you to really push to put content online because you really do appear to go above and beyond to make sure that a lot of the content that you publish is freely available online. What, what motivates you to, to do that side of stuff? I mean, I think of teachers as repressed actors. When you're a repressed actor, you want the biggest audience you can get. So, you know, if you can teach 500 people, why settle for 100? You can reach 5,000, why settle for 500? So my reasons are not, I'm not doing this because I'm some noble Mother Teresa of Finance. I'm doing it because I enjoy reaching a bigger audience, teaching my classes to a much larger audience. In fact, the way my uh, my classes go online is when I teach my regular classes at Stern. You know, I record the classes. In fact, last semester I carried them live on Zoom. I recorded the Zoom sessions and I put them online because my actual class is 300 MBAs, in it. Mm. but about 10,000 people track the class <clears throat> online and they wow. do it for free. Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, it's the fact that I can reach a bigger audience that 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 attracts me to being able to share. Uh, and this might be a silly question, but uh, posting kind of university grade content online has it ever been an issue with with any of the the universities that you work with? No, I mean I, I think I give them a choice. I, I say you take it or leave it. So it's, uh, <laughs> you know, one of one of the benefits of being where I am is I really don't care that much about holding on to anything that I have. So if NYU made a big deal about um, about sharing, I would walk away. So from that perspective, they know that this is a Faustian bargain they have to make with me, which is I'll teach large classes. I'll do it to the best of my ability, but in the process, I'm also going to share almost everything I do with the largest audience I can get there. So from that perspective, if it's an issue, they've never brought it up with me and they know better than to bring it up with me. <laughs> well, that, uh, the rest of us benefit for it. So <laughs> I very much appreciate that. Um, so to, to kind of sh- shift our, our conversation to the actual topic of valuation, um, as a channel that generally focuses on beginner investors, I, I, my own opinion is that valuation is something that a lot of beginner investors, it's probably the area that most people struggle with is how do you assign, for example, an impl- uh, intrinsic valuation to a publicly traded stock or a business, really? And to kind of dive into that topic, I was wondering if you could give a broad overview of where valuation sits in the investment process. And obviously, you, you teach very many different models. If there are any kind of models you'd like to highlight that you think do a good job of explaining why valuation is important in the investing process. First, let me dispense with the notion that valuation is important in the investing process. The way the investing process is practiced right now uses almost no valuation. It's based on pricing. Hmm. Pricing, basically, and I'll give you the contrast between valuation and pricing. Sure. Think about how you decide how much to pay for a house or an apartment you want to buy. Realtor shows you the house. You don't do an intrinsic valuation of the house. You look to see what other people have paid for similar houses in the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. In the context of stocks, the way this shows up is if you ask me, what should I pay for a stock? What I look at is what other people are paying for similar stocks. And then I say, you know what? This is what you need to pay for a stock. 
95% of what people do in markets is pricing. They, you know, so if you look at an equity research report, it'll claim a stock is cheap. The way it'll come to that conclusion, it'll look at the price earnings ratio or some standardized version of the price for that stock and compare it to 15 other stocks that it mm. claims are just like this stock. So pricing is really the dominant theme in markets. There are very few investors slash portfolio managers, even people who claim to be value investors, who actually base their decisions on valuations. Mm. So valuation is not that central to the way investing is played out. And one reason is, let's say you can value a company. Mm -hmm. Let's say you value a company at $30. The stock is trading at 20 and you're going to go buy the stock at 20, right? But to make money, what has to happen? The price has to adjust to value. Hmm. That's not in your control. And that might not happen this year, next year, or even over the next five years. The types of time horizons you would need to be able to make money on valuation, the kind of patience you will have to have, is such that most people don't have the stomach or the personality to use valuation investing. That doesn't make them bad investors or traders, it means that the tools they need to use have to be very different. So for most people, I would ask them to look inside. In fact, one of the things that uh, one of the books I wrote was on investment philosophies, where I said, you've got to pick an investment philosophy that best fits you. Mm. Not what best fits Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch or somebody else, but best fits you. And that's got to come from knowing yourself as a person. Are you naturally patient? Are you naturally impatient? If you're naturally impatient, don't try to invest based on value because you will lose patience well before the adjustment happens. So my advice to people is get to know yourself, find out what makes you tick, what makes you uncomfortable and keep tabs on those things because you got to devise an investment philosophy that's right for you. And if you happen to be long-term and patient and willing to go against the grip, the nature of valuation is you're often buying things when everybody else is losing faith in them. So right now you might buy NVIDIA when everybody else has kind of given up in NVIDIA. You wouldn't have bought it four years ago when everybody thought it was the greatest stock in the world. Right. That requires a willingness to stand up to peer pressure. So not everybody is, is built for that. But if you're built for that, you have a long time horizon, you're willing to go against the grain, then maybe valuation can be part of your arsenal as an investor. But mm -hmm. don't do it because... It's the right thing to do. Don't do it because Warren Buffett does it. Don't do it because other people claim it's the right thing to do. Because you've got to make the choices that are right for you as mm. a trader or an investor. So talking a bit about the difference between pricing, as you call it, and valuation. Um, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a distinction that seems to be being made between sort of relative valuation and absolute valuation. So relative mm. being the comparison, like you mentioned, of a company, say PE ratio, kind of the most widely used one relative to, you know, say other computer builders or uh, chip makers with the example, mm -hmm. uh, seeing how a company compares to, to peers versus absolute valuation, which you could argue discounted cash flow model is kind of the, uh, I guess, one of the more complicated ones that you could put together to try and come up with a dollar amount of what a company is worth uh, based on its, its projected cash flows into the future. Uh, do you think, uh, given that you say, you know, at, for sure in the short term, there's more stock put it on the relative side of things. Do you think that uh, impairs the capabilities of, of absolute valuation models like a discounted cash? Well, I suppose I'll just reword it. What are your opinions on things like discounted cash flow models and those more intrinsic uh, models that, you know, take a lot of calculations, 
but depend on this, you know, perfect pricing that, as you mentioned, is, is pretty tricky to, to get, uh, certainly in the short term. No, I think, you know, the, the way to describe the contrast between the two is valuation is driven by cash flows, growth and risk. It's always been driven by cash flows, growth and risk. Mm. That predates the discounted cash flow model. Mm. Discounted cash flow models are a recent development that we used to bring cash flows, growth and risk. But that Venetian glassmaker in the 1400s who sold his business to somebody else was basing value on what did I make as cash flows? How quickly am I growing? How risky are the cash flows? That's mm. oldest time. Pricing is driven by all of those factors, cash flows, growth, and risk, but it's driven also by behavioral factors, by mood, by momentum, by revenge. I mean, remember the GameStop episode where people were buying the stock to get revenge on the hedge funds. Excellent example. Pricing yeah. <laughs> is human. No, from that perspective, you're going to have to deal with behavioral factors when you think about pricing. Hmm. Now, if you believed in efficient markets, you believe that the pricing process and the value process yield numbers which are roughly similar. That's the definition of an efficient market. Sure. But anybody who's an active investor starts with the presumption that the two processes can yield different numbers, that the same company, which is when it's valued, can, you can get a different number than if it's priced. I mean, classic example is Bed Bath & Beyond in the last few weeks. There is no rational story that I can tell for Bed Bath & Beyond that would make it worth a lot as a company. Why? Because it's a terrible business model. Mm. It's a company that's a dying business. And no matter how much you dance around this, the value will reflect that. But if you're pricing Bed Bath & Beyond because it's driven by mood and momentum, if you can get enough people buying the stock, which Ryan Cohen did, you can push the price up fivefold or tenfold. Pricing operates in a very different set of dynamics and set, driven by different forces and valuation. As somebody who believes in valuation, does that frustrate me? Not in the least. It's the nature of the game. Mm. You know, it means that there are some companies I will not be able to buy because the price is always going to be significantly higher than the value. and It will take a long time for the adjustment to happen. There will be other companies I buy where I might have to wait three years or five years or seven years. But it's built on the faith. And remember the word I use, faith, not the belief, the faith, that eventually price has to converge in value. That you can't run away from the truth. When you, when you ultimately are putting your money in a business, the value of the business at some point in time will make itself known and the price will adjust. The reason I use the word faith is if you ask me to prove this, I can't prove it. Mm. Because people, I mean, what is the old saying that Keynes said? Markets can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. You can say mm. the price can stay way above value longer than you and I can stay on the face of this earth. So I am... My investment philosophy is built on the faith that eventually prices adjust to value, which means that if I find something undervalued, I'm willing to buy it and wait as long as I need to for the adjustment to happen. The advantage I have over an average active portfolio manager is I'm answerable to no one. I have no clients mm. who come and knock on my door and say, what have you done for me lately? And remember, that is a significant advantage that you and I have over a Fidelity Mutual Fund manager who's got to answer to clients who mm -hmm. judge him or her based on what he or she has done over the last three months, the last six months, the last year. So I, I know I have very few things I can bring to the table, but one of the things I can bring to the table is patience. I can wait a long time for the adjustment to happen, but it's still built on faith. Mm. That's a really good point uh, about kind of the advantage that individual investors might have over a fund manager. Um, I, I'm going to butcher 
uh, the statistic, but I remember there was one study that showed that the average length at which uh, individuals held just a mutual fund, for example, was under four years time, uh, which, you know, when you consider that most retail investors using mutual funds likely have a time frame well over 10 years, it's a pretty dismal number and, and something that puts pressure on those portfolio managers to tr uh, try and perform on a yearly basis, you know, to not have that longer term trajectory, like you mentioned with, with the valuation approach. Uh, so you, you touched a bit on it, uh, just uh, uh, recently there uh, regarding kind of your own views on valuation. So you mentioned you kind of focus on on that valuation side of the business as opposed to pricing. Uh, if I can pick your brain a bit, what sort of approaches do you take when you're trying to analyze a, a company? Do you consider everything from the multiples to the DCF models? Or are there more uh, qualitative functions that you take into play? What are the things that you're it's looking not, at when you look at a company? It's not an either or qualitative factors ultimately show up in the numbers. It's a business ultimately, right? Sure. So you think of it, take, let's take a couple of qualitative factors. Brand name, company has a strong brand name. You know where it mm. shows up? Pricing power, higher margins, higher cash flows. It's got great management. What does that mean? They find new ways to grow when you've given up on growth. Ultimately, every qualitative factor is a number that goes with it. So I'll, you know, when we talk about should I do quantitative or qualitative, you're drawing a false choice there because ultimately to do a number an analysis, it's a good quantitative analysis, you got to bring in all of the qualitative factors. To do a qualitative analysis that has any base, you also you always have to deal with numbers. So I think that you need to factor in whatever you need to bring in to be able to assess the value of a company. For a company like Coca-Cola, that might not be much. Why? Because the story's already been told. Hmm. It's a company with a clear basis, a business model, you know what it does. A company like Airbnb, it might take a lot more work and a lot more creative thinking, which often means you're going to be more likely to be wrong. But it depends on where a company is in the life cycle, how established its business model is. And the more established its business model, the less work there is in valuing the company. But here's the downside. If it's less work to value a company, it's less work for everybody else too. So if you think mm -hmm. about what do I bring to the table, my odds of finding a market mistake are far lower when I look at Coca-Cola than when I look at Airbnb. So don't yeah. look for easy companies to value because the reality is if you pick an easy company to value, Odds are you're going to find it pretty close to fairly value. Pick the companies where you know you're going to run into difficulties. Pick a company with 30% of its revenues in Russia. It's going to give you all kinds of headaches to decide what to do about the 30%. <laughs> right. But guess what? A lot of people are giving up on those companies. Mm. Go where it's darkest. Go where people are giving up. Go look at companies and sectors where people have thrown up their hands saying, I don't know what's going to happen. Because that's exactly where you're going to find the biggest mistakes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And, and so to sort of extrapolate, you're almost saying that depending on which area you're looking at, you would change your approach based on, like you mentioned, the life cycle of the company to kind of uh, touch more on on the model side of things when it comes to whether it be the work you see from students that you work with uh, or just from looking at the market itself. Are there any what you would call common pitfalls uh, that you would identify with how people value stocks? The kinds of pitfalls in valuation and in pricing, the pitfalls might be mood and momentum and getting caught up with the crowd wisdom of that moment. But valuation the mistakes will vary depending on where in the life cycle of companies. For a young company, mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes is assuming that scaling up is always going to be, is going to continue to be easy to do. What I mean by that is getting from 100 million to 
to a billion might is going to be easier to do than getting from a billion to 10 billion. Mm. So one of the biggest mistakes people often make is they take historical growth rates, 30, 40, 50%, which is what the company might have delivered and put it in as growth rate in the future, not recognizing that that growth now has to be on a much bigger base. Mm. Scaling up is hard to do. That's why most companies end up hitting a brick wall. The best companies, the greatest companies end up becoming legendary because they find ways of scaling up in spite of being bigger companies, like the Fangam stocks, Facebook, Amazon. What made them special was they were big companies for the most part by 2010, but they managed to get 15, 20% growth over the next 10 years. But for most companies, that's not the case. For more mature companies, I think the biggest mistake we make is assuming that things will continue the way they were. Mean reversion. Things will always revert back to the way they used to be. Now, I'll give you an example to show you even the greatest investors are not immune from making mistakes. Why did Warren Buffett buy Kraft Heinz in 2015? Because he thought, how can people resist 57 types of ketchup and cheese that stays liquid for the rest of time? <laughs> Part of that is colored by how old you are, right? Fair, I mean, yeah. recognize yeah. we walk in with biases reflecting our age. What he missed was the business at its core was melting down. Kraft Heinz consumer base was an aging consumer base. Hmm. No 25 year old wakes up and says, I want to try 57 times of Heinz ketchup. It must be amazing. Or I love cheese that stays liquid. Hmm. And what people missed is that the company was a great company, but its best days were already behind it. And sometimes when people value mature companies, they fail to factor in changes in the business that make the future much less attractive than the past. I would say the same thing about Coca-Cola and McDonald's. Great companies in their time, but their best days are behind them. Yeah. So I think we get too caught up in history sometimes and assuming that history will repeat itself. And I think we've got to be cautious about making that assumption both for young companies and more mature companies. I think with valuation models, history for a lot of, uh, well, for investors is all we have numerically to with certainty for what the company's done. So a lot of people find comfort in using those numbers to, as you mentioned, project the future, but it makes it harder to catch what might be a fundamental change in the underlying business, like you mentioned. Yeah, in I, fact, I know, to give a very different analogy, remember the mm. French generals built this defense for France after the First World War? which they thought would hold off. I think it was called the Maginot Line. They spent you know, the, half the defense budget doing it. Okay. The only problem was they were building it for the kinds of soldiers in the First World War on horses and you know, had low caliber guns. They weren't building it for the tanks. Mm. We're great at fighting the last war. And it's not just investors. Businesses do it. Macroeconomists do it. No, regulators do it. We're writing laws and regulations to protect ourselves from the last crisis, when in fact we know that the next crisis is going to look nothing like the last one. Hmm. And I think investors do the same thing is they look backwards because that gives us comfort. It gives us this delusion that we're working with facts, when in fact the future is always an estimate. Hmm. And I think it's one reason why we've been so slow to wake up to the effects of disruption over the last decade is more many businesses that we thought were really good businesses have been destroyed from the core because of disruption. And I think we underestimate the impact of disruption partly because of a dependence on history. Hmm. 
So you specifically mentioned that we over assume, I guess, how companies will be able to scale up and, and achieve this growth consistently over time. Obviously, the last few years have been a breeding ground for companies that have very high promises about their growth. I was just curious if you think that there's been any fundamental changes we've seen around those companies, uh, given the current macroeconomic environment, whether it be inflation rates, rising interest rates, quantitative tightening, if that's changing sentiment around these growth companies, or if these companies have had any shortcomings with their execution that are now coming to the surface. I think the problem is, I think they got one half of a business equation in. Scaling up is half the game, right? Making your revenues bigger. Getting... The other half of the game is building a business model that actually delivers profits. And I think for a decade, we've overestimated the importance of scaling up and underplayed the importance of building a business model. I'll give you a very specific example. I've tracked and valued Uber since its beginning, a company that mastered scaling up, right? A company that went from nothing to 400 sure. cities in seven years, but never built a business model that actually made money. It was founded, what, 2008, 2009? 2019, Dara Kashrowski finally came out and said, you know what, guys? We need to find a way to make money. And I got down my knees and said, finally, somebody at Uber gets the fact that building a bigger company Having more revenues is not going to make you a big, more valuable business. You've got to find a way to make money. But I blame us as investors. I blame venture capitalists who push companies to scale up and actually encourage them not to think about building business models because they just get more users, just get more subscribers. We worry about business models later. And in the process, we built these companies that are great at scaling up, but terrible at building business models. And I think the last year and a half or two, we've seen an adjustment, not in the scaling up part, but in the question of business models. Are these companies capable of building the business models? Let's say the same thing about Peloton and Zoom and the companies at Zoom during COVID is they were great at scaling up, but not that good at converting that scaling up into profits and earnings and cash flows. And that's going to be the test for the next decade. Mm. So tying it back to the current environment that we find ourselves in, do you think the you know, the, the phenomenon of investors rewarding higher growth companies with the macroeconomic environment around inflation and interest rates. Are we seeing a fundamental shift in the environment there that will change how investors reward companies based on growth? Do you think investors will stop rewarding companies for having that uh, unreserved growth without profitability? Will we see something given these changing underlying features, if you will? All I can say is for the moment, Yes. But the reason I say for the moment, there have been periods over the last 15 years. It's not been uninterrupted glory. There have been, mm. period, there have been pauses, but risk capital, as I call it, has always come back. More mm. plentiful than it was going in. So I think that for the moment, we're seeing a kind of retrenching of risk capital, moving to the sidelines. But we don't know how long it'll stay on the sidelines. That's a big unknown. I think that we were, we were coming off a dec decade of, ec of excess in risk mm. capital. Too much risk capital going to companies. The way I describe it is there are companies that were supplied capital and they had no business getting the amount of capital that they did. In fact, it ruined a lot of established businesses because of the amount of capital that flowed into these companies. But I think that um, we don't know yet how much the retrenchment will be, but I have a feeling that it's not going to, it's going to come back, but not to the level that it was over the last decade. Hmm. 
So the best days of SPACs might be behind you. The best days of that excess risk capital might be behind us. And that might be a healthy thing. That's a good thing for economies and markets. Hmm. What would you say are the factors driving that shift in, in uh, sentiment, if you will, of, among investors? We don't know because if we did, we'd find a great way to time markets, right? <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, that's what I think it's, 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 it is. It is one of the mysteries of what it is that caught. I mean, think about it. Just between two months ago, when the S&P was you know, climbing back up to 4,400. In two months, how did we go from everything's going to be great, market's going to come back to the end of the world is back on us, right? Mm. I mean, think of the mood swings we went through during 2020, March 23rd of 2020. People were heading for the hills. This was the end of the world. September of 2020, we had made back everything we lost in those six weeks when the markets collapsed and more. So it's amazing how market, and that's why I use the words mood and momentum to translate this, because this we don't know what causes crowd psychology to shift, mm. but we know it can shift on a dime. Mm. At a week from now, we'll be looking at how healthy the market looks and how great it is doing. And we have no idea what happened in the intervening week that caused that change. Mm. And I think that's why I'm wary of market timers who claim to have found a crystal ball that will tell them when this change is coming. Mm. Because the history of markets is change happens and it's almost impossible to predict what causes it to happen. Great points. Uh, actually tied to that, I was looking at your, again, I mentioned you have this website uh, that you host a lot of your resources on. Uh, on the front page, I noticed that you highlight a specific metric, which is the uh, implied equity risk premium. I was just curious if you could explain for someone who hasn't heard that term before what it is and what its significance is that you would post it on the front page of, of your website, for example. Remember I talked about risk capital, how, it's, how it ebbs and flows and now it's on the sideline. I've always looked for a metric that will tell me, it's like a thermometer that measures how much people are willing to take risk and how much they're charging for taking that risk. What's the price of risk in the market? Mm -hmm. An equity risk premium just measures what people are demanding as a price for taking risk. So let's put it this way. When investors are buoyant, there's a lot of risk capital in the game. That price is going to go down. The equity risk premium is going to be low. If people get scared, there's a crisis, the equity risk premium is going to rise. And one reason I track it on a month-to-month -month basis is precisely because of what we talked about, how the mood can shift from week to week, from month to month. So during crisis, I actually track that number on a daily basis. I did okay. it between February 14th of 2020 and March 23rd, and the markets were melting down every day because it gives me a gauge of how terrified people are and what they're charging as a price for risk. So the reason I highlight it on the front page is if you ask me for one number on the market that I would track, that would tell me where the market is and what it's charging for risk, that would be the number. And knowing what it is right now is, I think, a healthy start to being realistic about what you can expect to see in markets. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's a good point. And for anyone who isn't familiar with how risk premiums work, as you mentioned sort of the reward that investors expect is, is kind of one way you could put it for taking on the risk that comes with investing in stock markets. So uh, as mentioned, if the market is riskier, investors might demand a higher payment or reward. Or even if the market is not riskier, if you feel, I mean, this is as much about what's it true about the market right? as your perception. Mm -hmm. That's why nothing might change in the market. But if you wake up one day feeling terrified, and we all wake up feeling terrified. The place it's going to show 
is by selling stocks, price is going to go down, the risk premium is actually going to go up. So it's, uh, I think that's why I call it my one metric for, I call it the receptacle for all the hopes and fears in markets. Right. It's one number that captures all of those things playing out. Hmm. To sort of shift the, the conversation a bit, and I <laughs> mentioned in the email, I'm sorry to ask this because it's it's something that I think is is a topic that's beaten down quite a bit, but something that a lot of people are interested in hearing professional opinions on is in the world of, of cryptocurrencies. Uh, on this channel, I don't necessarily touch on the topic a lot myself, but it's something that's dominated headlines over the last few years in this very risk-on environment. Um, now that we're seeing a, a shift in in risk tolerance, I suppose. Uh, I was curious if, if over the last few years, if on whether it be the academic side or the, the practical side, have you seen increased demand for whether it be literature on, on the subject or uh, actual investor interest in your uh, the courses you run for you to cover these types of topics? What is sort of the, your perception that you've seen about demand around cryptocurrencies and has it changed over the last few years? First, let's put it in perspective. The collective value of all cryptocurrencies at the very peak of Bitcoin was about two and a half trillion. Mm. The market cap of the single largest company in the world at that time was three trillion. So collectively, all the cryptos put together at the peak of their pricing was worth were worth less than one company mm. in the world. To me, the amount of time, resources, and energy we've spent talking about crypto over the last 14 years vastly exceeds any weight it has in the global economy. Hmm. So I think we need to give it the kind of attention it deserves, which is some attention, but this isn't, this isn't a you know, game changer in any way. Hmm. I've always had an open mind about cryptos and especially about Bitcoin because I'm willing to accept the fact that a digital currency might be where we're headed. Hmm. So my question with crypto has always been, is it a good currency? Hmm. And that's really the, the crux of the, the, the question, right? Hmm. I mean, let's think about what makes a good currency. This was Frank. is an incredibly good currency. Why? Because it's a medium of exchange. Not only can I use it in Switzerland to buy stuff, but I can take it anywhere in the world, walk into any bank, convert into the local currency and spend it. It's a good medium of exchange. It's a good store of value. I put a hundred Swiss francs into my pocket and I forget about it for a year and I go back to Switzerland. I can buy roughly the same amount with that hundred Swiss francs as I did a year ago because inflation is close to non-existent. Swiss franc is a great currency. The Venezuelan Bolivar, not so good. So first, even among fiat currencies, you can see there are great currencies, there are good currencies, there are average currencies, there are bad currencies. So the question I asked initially when I looked at Bitcoin is, where would I put it in this pantheon of currencies? If I were putting it, is it close to the Swiss franc or is it close to the Venezuelan Bolivar? As a medium of exchange, I have a question. And I have a question for those people who are true believers in, 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 in Bitcoin. When was the last time you actually used Bitcoin to actually transact? I didn't ask when did you trade Bitcoin to make money, but that's not how we measure a currency. We don't ask how much is it trade. We ask how often do we use it in transaction? The sure. answer is yeah. even in a room full of Bitcoin advocates, the answer is almost never. Hmm. It's raises an interesting question. Why are 14 years after its entry into markets are so few people using it? And the answer is very simple. What makes it so attractive as a trading instrument 
fact that the price can jump up and down makes it a terrible currency. Mm. Would you want to be a shopkeeper who lists prices in Bitcoin? Can you imagine how often during the course of the day you'd have to go around the store changing your prices because it'd go up 30% during the course of a day? What makes it a good trade makes it a terrible currency. So my pushback against Bitcoin was not that a digital currency wouldn't work, but the way Bitcoin was designed and traded made it a terrible currency, which is part of the reason it's remained kind of this very mildly used mm -hmm. currency. The other argument that's made for Bitcoin is it's a collectible. It's millennial gold that instead of putting your money in gold, you put it in Bitcoin. The problem sure. is a good collectible holds its value during crisis. It goes up when your financial assets are going down. So one of the tests I've run on Bitcoin is, what does it do during crises? And you know what, what it does? It does, yeah, the it's last, like yeah. very risky stock. When stocks yeah. are down, it's down even more. When stocks mm. are up, it's up even more. It's not a good currency. It's not a good collectible. So what the heck are you paying $20,000 for? Mm. Mm -hmm. The only answer is because somebody else will buy it from me for 25,000. This is a pure trading speculation. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's always been the problem with cryptos. The cryptos that are out there, at least the cryptocurrencies, I don't see them becoming good currencies or good collectibles. So I'm not sure I would pay the money that people are paying for them. No. Mm -hmm. But within crypto, let's be clear, there are no other cryptos that are more like commodities. Ethereum is an example where you could argue that it's going to become the lubricant for blockchains, which I think are a clear innovation of the future. And perhaps from a commodity perspective, you should be willing to pay for them. So cryptos are a big bucket now. You've got crypto assets, sure. crypto, cryptocurrencies, crypto commodities, and you got to decide which crypto you're talking about when you talk about cryptos. Mm -hmm. When it comes to uh, Bitcoin's use as a currency, I, I think, uh, I, I believe it was just this week, there was a article I read about El Salvador, uh, which for terrible, who terrible experiment, right? Mm -hmm. You knew this was going to happen when when they introduced it. Because I think that to take a country with an with a very large percentage of poor people and mm -hmm. to put them in Bitcoin was a train heading into a wall right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I'm not surprised by what's happened. I'm saddened because the people who pay the price are not the government people who made the decision. It's those people who are told that Bitcoin would save them. Mm. But um, I think that for those people, who, and that's a third argument made for Bitcoin, is it can replace failed currencies. El Salvador's an experiment. Mm. Clearly it didn't work very well there either. So one by one, all of the arguments for Bitcoin are being dispensed with in front of our eyes. Which leaves me with the question of, you know, if you're still a defender of Bitcoin, where do you see its usage? And don't tell me it's scarce. And that's the only thing you can say as its defense is you've lost the argument already. Mm -hmm. And all at a time where the U.S. dollar uh, on a global benchmark has actually been strengthening despite high inflation within the U.S. market. Um, and funny enough, El Salvador, U.S. dollar is now the currency of, of choice for, for many El Salvadorians. Um, given the, the troubles that's occurred with Bitcoin, I think the stat was that 20% of, of those who signed up with a promotion from the government to, to use the Bitcoin cryptocurrency wallet uh, actually ended up continuing to use the, the wallet. The 80% either used the promotional amount or, or never touched it after they received it. So it goes to show that 
in a practical sense, the, the idea of using Bitcoin at least hasn't fared out in the El Salvador example, where you have a country who some would say is the perfect test case of a of a, a impoverished country that needs sort of an uplifting of its monetary system that, you know, tries adopting Bitcoin to try and decentralize itself and offer this alternative to what's been a, a not so uh, stable financial system, having that kind of fall flat on its face with El Salvador. But, but the problem is in Bitcoin's design, right? It was designed to be an inefficient currency. In fact, I've described mm. Bitcoin as created by the paranoid for the paranoid. Mm. And I say that without any insult meant to people using it. Because it's built on the belief that you can't trust anybody. It's built on the belief that you cannot have a centralized authority to trust. No banks, no central banks, no governments. And you can see why, because of its history. In Bitcoin, mm -hmm. the first you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever the pseudonym was that created Bitcoin, the paper that developed it came out in November of 2008. You know, you're probably too young to remember November of 2008, but I remember November of 2008. It was two months into the crisis. And we'd lost faith in every single central. We, we didn't trust governments. We, it was born out of the distrust. And the problem is you build a currency with no trust. Then you got to design these very strange ways of confirming a transaction. Like a thousand people have to get on their computers, check for a math algorithm to see if, you're, if you have enough currency in your wallet to pay for something. It's incredibly inefficient. And no matter what you do to get around that, that inefficiency is going to be something that Bitcoin can never overcome. You got to trust someone, somebody to build an efficient currency. It's not a central bank, it's got to be something else. And with Bitcoin, there is no trust and without trust, you can't build an efficient currency. Hmm. No, great, excellent points. Uh, and something that I think a lot of young investors, you kind of mentioned it too, that the argument of scarcity tends to be the falling back point uh, it alone isn't enough to justify the entire adoption of, of Bitcoin, as many people projected and, no, and foresee you know it into the future. Dog poop is scarce. There's only so <laughs> much dog poop in the world, right? Right. There's a lot of stuff that's scarce. Scarcity is such a minimal requirement mm. for something to be a currency that using it as an argument, I think, misses what you need for a currency. So I think if people are still using the scarcity argument, they, as I said, they've lost the argument. You need something more effective than it's scarce. There are only 21 million or whatever Bitcoin units you can have in the world. Mm. That's not going to go very far. Right. I'm looking forward to the angry comments about Demodorin comparing Bitcoin to dog poop. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe dog poop will be the next big priced asset. Maybe, maybe that'll be the other thing. Maybe we'll be paying <laughs> tens of thousands of dollars. Who knows Who knows in this economy? Who knows yeah. where we're heading? Um, so thank you uh, for, for kind of going through those topics. To finish on sort of a strong note and constructive note for viewers, uh, I kind of want to have a two-prong uh, question for you about uh, for supporting people wanting to learn more about valuations. For one, for a beginner investor who, say, wants to analyze a company themselves, wants to go through that in-depth process, the, the deep dive, if you will, into a publicly traded stock, what would you say would be a good starting point for someone looking to do that, starting from square one with no prior knowledge of a business? Uh, that would be the first question. And the secondly would be, if you had any resources for someone looking to learn more about valuations in general, uh, what would you have to offer there? I think the first is, I'm not a great fan of accounting. I am not an accountant, but let's face it, the language of business is accounting. So mm -hmm. I think that if you really want to do valuation, you need to at least get the basic. You don't need to take an accounting class, 
but you need to be able to read a financial statement. You need to know the difference between an operating income and a net income. That's why I created a free online accounting class on my website. It's about it's 12 sessions. It's very, it's accounting taught by somebody who's not an accountant. Basically, this is the accounting I need to be able to understand value businesses. Right. My suggestion is you start there. The the second skill set you need is to be able to work with numbers, which is really what statistics classes should have taught all of us in our class in our, in our co- in colleges. But unfortunately, the way statistics get taught, they make us hate the subject more than we did walking in. And I think that's unfortunate. Good statistics is at the heart of understanding and working with data. Hmm. So my advice is start with accounting and statistics as a foundation before you do valuation. The second is, if you really want to learn valuation, you got to get your hands dirty. Don't read about valuation. Don't watch other people do valuations. Do a valuation on your own. The first time you do it, it'll be tough. It'll be like pulling teeth. It'll be lots of mountains to climb. But you will learn about valuation by doing it. It's a craft. You get better at it by doing it. In fact, I described the, the analogy I offer is cooking. The way you learn cooking is by cooking. The way you learn valuation is by doing. So pick a company, make it a simple company to value first, and then make it more and more complex as you go along. And each time you value a company, you will learn something new about valuation. Hmm. Well, thank you very much for for that. I very much appreciate the insights you had to offer and for the tools you have to share. Definitely recommend checking out uh, Demodoran's website where you can get a lot of these free resources. And as mentioned, university-grade free courses online as well as through uh, the youtube channel as well as motorin on youtube uh is there any other sites or anything you'd like to shout out or mention that you could share with viewers looking to get more of your content i i mean i i think my blog which is musings and markets which is a google blog you know it says basically where i value companies in real time so the porsche ipo that's going to happen in a in a couple of mm-hmm. weeks i plan to value it and post on my blog so you can see me go through the process of telling a story and converting the story into evaluation, which I think is at the heart of understanding what valuation is all about. Hmm. Excellent. So I'll leave links to all those in the description down below so you can check them out there. But thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dramodaran, for taking the time to uh, talk with us today and, and go through those topics. It really was an honor. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. And thank you guys for watching. We'll see you in the next one. Until then, be safe out there. Cheers. <laughs>